You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. This is Casey, and I'm here with Emily. Hi. Hi, Hi, Emily. (laughs) All right. And we are excited to be here with you on the Together in Literacy podcast for episode 15, where we're going to dive into accommodations for dyslexia. Before we get started with that, though, we are so appreciative of each one of you taking the time to listen and to share your reviews and questions with us. As always, we like to begin each of our episodes with a listener review. And so this listener review is from CODH21. And they said, I just found your podcast and using it to help educate myself about the science of reading and dyslexia. While I may have my master's in reading, dyslexia was not mentioned once, nor was the science of reading. I also believe, especially now that social emotional needs need to be met more effectively through appropriate instruction for all students. Yes. Thank you so much for that review. And I agree with you. Yeah, we can totally relate to this feedback from this person (laughs) because no, dyslexia was not mentioned, nor the science of reading. Other, right. other things were, <laughs> but no, not dyslexia. So, right. and that is really our goal to really help to bridge that knowledge of dyslexia and the science of reading to the social emotional components, because we know that uh, they go hand in hand. So thank you so much for that review. Um, and we are going to kind of get started here on talking about accommodations. Okay. So episode 15, all about accommodations. We're going to dive right in. We're going to talk about the uh, what accommodations are, why we need them, what's their purpose, what are the benefits of having them, and some of the more common accommodations that you should be seeking out. Things will change over time, depending on the child, right? Depending on mm-hmm. how old they are and so forth. But we're just going to go through some of the more common ones and some things to keep in mind when you choose certain accommodations. We find this to be such and such an important topic, not only for families, but for educators as well. We know if you're an educator, you hear about accommodations all the time, right? You're Mm -hmm. in those IEP meetings, you read them in the IEPs, you know, and have seen them and have probably collaborated with um, making suggestions for them. If you're a parent, you and have a child who is maybe entering the world of having an IEP into special education, then the term accommodations may be new to you, or it may be something that 
you really have worked very, very carefully with, tirelessly for. There's all kinds of, I think, um, emotions that come along with accommodations when you are a caregiver. So because at the heart of this all is who is the child, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when we think about accommodations, it doesn't really matter how many resources you have, but if you don't know how to use them, then they're meaningless. Our accommodations have to carry meaning behind them, not only for the educator, but also for the child. We need to know why they're put in place um, and how they can be used. You know, when Emily's saying that it doesn't matter how many resources we have, if we don't know how to use them, if our students haven't been given the opportunity to practice the accommodations, to put them into place, then they have them, yeah, on a list, but are they actually using them? They, if they don't know how to use them, then they really are meaningless. So right. I think yeah. that is an important piece. That accommodations page, I think really is like a living, breathing document. Mm-hmm. It's not something to just be like a paper trail paper trails obviously are extremely important, but if we're not looking at it, revisiting it and seeing how it's actually going to be put into action, then what is the real meaning of using them? In the world of dyslexia, uh, we know that they're essential for our children. Dr. Sally Shaywitz in Overcoming Dyslexia has a beautiful quote. She said, accommodations represent the bridge that connects you to your strengths and in the process allows you to reach your full potential. She also notes accommodations don't produce success, but they're the catalysts for success. And I really love that distinction because if you think about the meaning of a catalyst, right, Mm -hmm. it helps to sort of speed things up a little bit, give it a little bit of a kickstart we sort of think of accommodations as uh, leveling the playing field a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? So we'll think about accommodations as are also as a bridge, right? As as Dr. Shaywitz has said, and we love using that term um, with our children, but Casey also has really, really wonderful analogy she's going to get into in a minute. But when we think about accommodations, certainly you might be thinking like, all right, well, we've got like extra time, not reading out loud, perhaps, or reading in front of, you know, reading in front of peers. We want to make it clear that accommodations aren't seen as a crutch. Mm-hmm. All too often, for instance, audiobooks, I think, have gotten a bad rap and have been seen as a crutch when in fact, they are vitally important to people with dyslexia and will ensure that they're being able to access the curriculum, the curriculum and uh, hear that fluent reading in their ear and help improve their um, overall vocabulary and comprehension. So Mm -hmm. just a couple of things to keep in mind when we're talking about accommodations, we're not talking about using them as a crutch, but more as a tool and Casey's going to talk about that analogy. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And I think, you know, Emily touched on that, right? So when we're thinking about accommodations, we 
can think about accommodations as that bridge to the curriculum. And accommodations really, they change how students access the information, how they show their knowledge and their skills and their abilities, but they aren't changing the curriculum. That is when we get into modifications. So accommodations right. are different. Accommodations are tools. So we can think about it this way. And this is how I talk about it with my students. I always ask them, you know, do your mom and dad have a toolbox in their in their house. Yeah. Right. Okay. What are the things that are in there? They may have a hammer, a screwdriver, nails, all of the different tools that they use to, to help them fix things or to help them make things stronger. Right. And so if we think about accommodations as tools, okay. And we can think about the toolboxes that we have in our homes, we use different tools to accomplish various tasks. So we wouldn't use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. I mean, you could, but it's probably not going to be the most efficient way <laughs> to right. access your tool or, you know, your time or to create a well-done project. But so we can think about this, right? So sometimes we can accomplish a task without a tool, but that doesn't mean that we're throwing the tools away, right? After I use my screwdriver or hammer, I'm not going to chuck it into the trash. I'm going to put it back into my toolbox. So we keep them and then we use our understanding of what we need to determine when best to access them to achieve a goal. And so the same thing goes for accommodations. Kids need to have those tools, those accommodations in their toolbox so that they can access them when they need them. And that and that requires us to help students understand themselves as learners, understand what the accommodation is and why it's needed and how it helps them um, in, so that it's not just something that's written on a piece of paper, but actually something that they are using and understanding when and how to use to help them accomplish a goal. I have a silly connection to your toolbox <laughs> analogy. So yes. when you think about this, accommodations help to achieve efficiency in learning, mm -hmm. right? We can agree on yeah. that, that they, they really help to, cre to create the most efficient path for, for our students. And think about it. I could, we'll want to use a hammer, right? And, and some nails when we want to hang a picture, for instance. And there have been times in the past when we haven't been able to locate my hammer and I don't know why, but you know, it just hasn't been in my little toolbox. So admittedly, I have tried using a hairbrush instead. <laughs> and now, did that get the job done? Hammering a nail with a hairbrush into the wall. Um, yeah, probably. Was it the most efficient way to hang a picture on the wall? No. No, I probably like you know, had a few paint chips falling down, and maybe made a bigger hole or whatever, but I might've just been, you know, in such a rush that I just said, oh, I'm just going to use this instead. So having the right tools for the right purpose creates efficient learning. And I love the way uh, Casey has explained that for us. So don't go <laughs> telling anybody I used a hairbrush to hammer a nail into my wall. So. But well, I do I love using my power drill. I do. I do. <laughs> yes. Well, and why? Because it's fast, it's efficient, you yeah. know how to use it and you can quickly get something done. Yeah. And that's really what we're talking about, get it, having it be a bridge to the curriculum, right? It's not that our students can't do the work. 
They just need assistance getting there. And so that is what those tools provide. And I think when we're talking about accommodations, one of the things that I see, um, and we'll kind of go into these more common accommodations, but some of the things that I see is that a student is using them and they're performing really well. And then when we have a 504 meeting or an IEP meeting, then all of a sudden they're trying to take those accommodations away because the child's doing well. And so mm-hmm. that is when I will come back again and say, you know, yes, they're using their tools, which is what we want. And so there is another Sally Shaywitz quote that I love that talks specifically about this, where she says, one of the most common errors of teaching a dyslexic child to read is to prematurely withdraw the instruction that seems to be working. Oh, and yes. Yes. I, I love that. And for me, I also take that and I bridge that to accommodations because that's also something I see. We will prematurely pull accommodations from students. And so that's why for the work that I do with my children, I talk to them about it being a toolbox and we don't get rid of our tools. We just put them into our toolbox and we pull them out when we need them. So that is, I don't know, that's something that I see as a big struggle with my students. And so it's, it's really talks a lot about why I take the time in my sessions to talk to them about those metacognitive skills. And, and we talk about the tools and we talk about the accommodations and how they're working and which ones are working and which ones we need to tweak and when do we use them and how do we use them so that they are having that practice to bridge that knowledge to their work. I think that is so important to have those open conversations about our tools and what works for us, because we are supporting not only the whole child, but we're also helping them develop their own independence and responsibility to learn how to self-advocate. And part of having tools or accommodations is also learning how to self-advocate because these kids are 1000% going to have to learn how to self-advocate as they get older. And we are really, really providing such an important service when we have these open conversations about those things that they need just to be successful, to be able to see their own strength. And and Emily had talked a little bit about how, you know, our accommodations will evolve over time. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is also this self-awareness and those self-advocacy skills, they also evolve over time, really hand in hand as you're working with the child. So, you know, this isn't just something where it's really, you know, you write it down, you say, Hey, this is the accommodations you have, you know, you should be able to ask for them. Those are, those are skills that we need to pull in their executive function skills and their self-awareness skills and their metacognitive skills and their reflective skills. And it really does need to evolve over time. So So I think that that's really a piece for us to kind of keep in mind as we move through some of these, as we move through this conversation about some of the more common accommodations that we have into place, just understanding that they are going to evolve over time with your child. Yeah. I mean, something as common as there'll be different types of assistive technologies that could become more useful as an accommodation as a child with dyslexia gets older. And we'll go into some of those, but that's just one example of something that could evolve over time Um, because assistive technologies for a younger child are going to look really different than something for a college student with dyslexia. So we'll talk about some of the 
the most common ones. So just keeping in mind that these evolve over time. Are there more accommodations than these? Sure, there are, absolutely. But these are the ones that we find that we go back to quite a bit when we're having discussions, when IEPs are written, we also ha we had a discussion, I think, a little bit about accommodations in our last episode with Sydney. Um, yeah, in episode 14. We and uh, a couple of things I'm noting in our list right here that she had brought up as well. So if you hadn't had a chance to listen to our interview with Sydney about our uh, speech and language specialist here, then that's pathologist definitely listen to that. So mm -hmm. the first one, and I don't know why Casey, but yeah. this so one, if we're talking kind of about, you know, those most, yeah. most common so, accommodations. Yes. This first one, I don't know why always seems to have like a little bit of contention come along with it. And, and I just don't know why, but it's the use of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, there have been, it has been seen seemingly viewed as cheating. And, and that's just really not true. When we recommend audiobooks, we certainly always recommend that the child has a copy of the text in front of them so they can try and follow along mm -hmm. so that they can be looking, following along, but also listening to that proficient reader in their ear. And the use of audiobooks is just so helpful, I think, across the board, no matter the age, into mm -hmm. college, specifically when there may be some textbook reading. I think uh, Learning Ally has textbooks offered they do with an audio version and that is yeah. really 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 important <laughs> what do you think about audiobooks i think audiobooks i always recommend that those be put on accommodations mm -hmm. and just for as emily was saying so yes we want children there's many benefits that come with audiobooks right we want children to be tracking with their eyes as much as possible as they as they're reading these but audiobooks provide students an opportunity to read text that may be above where they're currently reading on their own. Right. So therefore they have access then to higher vocabulary. They're looking at deeper storylines perhaps and what they're able to read independently. And they are listening to someone who is modeling proficient reading and certain ones like learning ally have humans speaking. And I know Spotify is starting to have that as well. So there are a lot of wonderful benefits for audiobooks. The other thing that I always recommend for my older students is that, it, as Emily mentioned, it has textbooks available. So while while I often talk to parents about up in the grades, the workload compounds. And so, yes, our students in those upper grades, they may be able to access the text independently, just fine. But when all of a sudden you have to read two chapters in chemistry, three chapters in English language arts, you have a math exam and you have to read world cultures, that is a lot of reading. And then we have fatigue that sets in. And so I think having that those audio books available to our students is such an important piece for helping them manage their time being able to access the curriculum, because just re remember those accommodations, they're providing a different path 
or access to the curriculum while maintaining the expected standards and performance. So it's providing them that bridge to access the curriculum. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, that fatigue piece when, yeah, when you're juggling multiple subject areas is real for sure. So that is such an important point to make. The next one on our list is the use will twofold here, not using timed tests and or providing extended time. We'll get into extended time for a minute, but timed tests. Yeah. We know that there are time tests out there. Um, but when we think about timed tests, like for math facts, mm-hmm. that can be a huge source of stress and worry that causes yeah. pretty much a shutdown yeah. for children with dyslexia. So reconsidering our timed fact tests is just one example, not providing those. <laughs> Well, and I think that it also comes to, you know, when we're looking at a child, um, understanding that, you know, dyslexia exists on a continuum and that we, each child is unique in their learning profile. Some of our children may have a very hard time with recall. And so when you're having a time test like that, panic sets in anxiety sets in, and all of a sudden every answer that they may be new, poof, has escaped. (laughs) And then if we're thinking about the purpose of those, you can go back and listen to Erica Warren, Dr. Erica Warren's episode on working memory. Mm. Um, There's a difference between working memory and recall. So, you know, understanding the difference between those and, and then just thinking about, okay, well, what is our purpose of a time test? Now, is there, are there times when time tests are maybe valid? Yeah. But you know, just being mindful of when we're assigning those and the impact on the child, I think is important to keep in mind. Absolutely. I think that was a great point to bring up our, uh, Dr. Erica Warren's episode on working memory, please. If you would like to learn a little bit more about that, definitely refer back yeah. to that episode. Extended time is the next one. So let's we're talk about, about that. that. <laughs> yeah. Extended time. All right. So Extended time can really be, I I consider it a gift um, Mm -hmm. for kids, especially going back to working memory, just needing time to process. When we think about children with dyslexia in their reading, is their reading going to look like smooth sailing on highway lanes in the fast lane? No, it may look a little bit more, right? Like uh, hiking through the woods where there are roots and rocks and bumps, and it's not going to be as smooth as that fast lane highway reading. Right. Right. So we need these kids to be able to be given that extended time so that they can have time to not only read, but to process. Yeah. And I see extended time as something that's really valuable for students, especially when they're having to do reflective questions and do written responses. Um, if we remember that dyslexia is a language-based learning difference, then we need to think about the impact that language is playing when we're asking students questions, you know, the way that questions are worded can be really tricky for students to determine what it is exactly that the teacher's asking Absolutely. and then to formulate a response is going to take some extra time. And so that is why that is provided. And then extra time can look 
a little bit different. Again, remember evolving over time. Extra time may be where you provide a student with um, an extra day to complete an assignment. Or sometimes if it's a big assignment that's coming up, I will request the assignment ahead of time so that they can, we can really piecemeal it and take it bit by bit to break it down for the student. Um, it may be, you know, an extended time where they get to go to a quiet space and continue their work. Please don't take recess. No, <laughs> please don't. Time. Please don't. Yeah. Recess is not extended time. No. But um, you know, so finding those those opportunities and and helping the child determine if they need that extra time or not. But extended time really is something if we if we understand what dyslexia is and and how it's impacting learning, extra time just makes sense. And just build and to piggyback on extended time. Sometimes extended time means building in a little bit of a break. Yeah. And that might mean like they need a quick stretch break, something like that. Like it might be something as simple as that for kids to just, you know, get that blood flowing again, get moving, get the oxygen flowing <laughs> smoothly. Sometimes it's just yeah. that it really is going to depend on the child. Our next one is quiet space. So when we think about quiet space, some kids with dyslexia really cannot have that added stimuli around them, mm -hmm. extra noise, sound, lighting, any, sometimes certain kids get into a, a bit of a, more of a stressed out situation when they don't have a quiet space to work. A lot of people do, including me. I am not yeah. a person that can work with music <laughs> on in the background. Yeah. I just can't. I've never been able to do that. I need things to be really, really quiet. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that as having being a tool for your students and helping students to be able to say, I need a quieter space to work and help right. them and say, and it's okay to speak up for yourself, to ask for that. Yeah. And because I think that that actually connects to the extended time too, because yeah. I know if I'm, we're all taking a test or something or have an assignment and everyone else is starting to finish and I'm not ready, Ooh. I'm going to rush through where yeah. if I maybe am in a quiet space, that is not necessarily like in my awareness or vision as much as it would be if I'm sitting in, in my classroom, you know, right there in the center of it and everyone else is finishing and I'm still on question two, kind of thinking, you know, thinking about how, again, how that looks and, and works within your, your classroom or setting. And so the next one that Emily and I were talking about is note-taking. And I do think this one especially evolves over time with our students as, as they're moving through the grades, but note-taking is one that I work on a lot with my middle school and high school students. There's several different ways that you can have accommodations for note-taking where you can provide the student with all of the notes and they then highlight or underline on your notes as you're lecturing. You can have it be where it's more of um, a close note taking where you have some blanks available for them to fill in and then they're adding their own notes or perhaps you teach some Cornell notes. But one thing that I've seen is for us as educators to understand why it is that we're providing notes to the student. And that's because the cognitive overload of having to listen to a lecture, try to write it down when writing is perhaps not as fluid, spelling is impacted. That is a lot of cognitive overload for our students. So when we can provide them with notes, 
they can then add their own thoughts to the notes that you've provided. Now, as I will make a side note that if you are providing notes to a student, please make sure that's spelled correctly and legible. <laughs> I've seen some notes where I, you know, I, I appreciate the effort that, right. that, that the teachers are making, but they'll be like they're handwritten. And I even struggle trying to figure out what it is that they're writing down or there'll be misspelling. So, you know, if we understand the purpose of notes, I think that that would make us more intentional in what we're providing for our students. Right. And in note-taking, like for instance, with your younger students, I think that there are a lot of graphic organizers out there, Mm -hmm. but the purpose of the graphic organizer is to actually help children make a visual image of that organizer in their mind, for instance, the Venn diagram. So what I always recommend with the use of graphic organizers as a note taker is that sticking with one format of graphic organizer per skill and not doing like, here's a snowman graphic organizer. Here's a tree graphic organizer, like keeping it really, really tight down to maybe three or four that know, okay, when I see Venn diagram, compare, contrast. I'm going to visualize mm-hmm. that in my mind. Visualization is super, super important with graphic organizer. I was just going to piggyback and say, I love that you brought that up because I think understanding why we're using it is then highlighted when you are just being very mindful about which graphic organizer you're using and then have those conversations with, if you, if you're in a school that each person teaches, you know, a different subject, talk about how you can use those graphic organizers across. So if you're using a Venn diagram, like Emily said, in your English language arts, talk to your math teacher, talk to your science teacher so that you guys are using the same graphic organizers for our students to make those transitions across. Yeah. I can't stress the visualization of that organizer, making that mind map in their head. So, so, so critical for these kids. And then as a student gets a little bit older, I think as Casey was noting that front-loading students with notes is so helpful, but even something as simple as providing just the vocab ahead of time Mm -hmm. so that they can just sort of rehearse a little bit. So, so helpful. So, because I know in, in my husband, you know, he, he's an eighth grade teacher. He, he, he knows like, you know, providing the notes. Yeah. Sometimes that can be you know, a little bit of a challenge, maybe for every single lecture, but you know what? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that can be done. I think simply doesn't have to be hugely detailed, but can be extremely valuable. So something to keep that, to keep in mind and front loading can be helpful for so many students, especially even for your, for your English language learners. So not just for people with dyslexia. Yes. That's that's a great one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a great one. I'm glad we really went into that. The next one, checklist for organization. So, oh my goodness. I mean, I need checklists. My checklists need checklists. (laughs) I love checklists. (laughs) And this is just so critical for executive function skills. Kids just aren't going to magically get organized. (laughs) It needs to be modeled and shown explicitly. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that we often see with students with dyslexia and, and in general, like a mm. lot of our, you know, older kids, yeah. they struggle with sequencing. So therefore they may have a really hard time organizing what they need to do first, right. <laughs> what comes right. next, 
<laughs> and prioritizing. So yeah. helping students have checklists in place for that can be really beneficial. And when somebody with dyslexia is feeling that overwhelm of academics and, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I've got this assignment, this, 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 and all of this is coming at you all at once. It's really hard to know what to do first. Yeah. And how to initiate and get started. So having checklists just helps them sort of put things all into perspective. Like, okay, first I'm going to do this. First, I'm going to read these pages. Okay. And take notes then. Okay. I'm going to fill out this graphic organizer or something like that. It depends on, on the checklist that you have. Sometimes a checklist may be, you know, something as simple as what your homework assignments are, mm-hmm. but it might also be outlining how to complete a long-term project. So when we think about dyslexia, right, people often associate that right away with, okay, difficulty with reading and spelling. Right. Okay. Right. And we know that that is certainly much more complex than that, but mm-hmm. If we're talking about spelling, (laughs) so one of the most common accommodations that we see on students 504 or IEP plans is to not mark off for spelling outside of final drafts and spelling tests. And so you may ask, well, hmm, they should know those spelling words by this time. If we remember, and if we go back again to what dyslexia is and what is impacted, we know spelling is often a challenge, right there. We are still working on linking those speech sounds to the letter representations and then understanding within the English language, those layers that exist for our spelling and all those different spelling generalizations that come into play. So Mm -hmm. understanding that, right. And then not marking off. And it's very disheartening for a student to have a paper come back and it is just covered in red for spelling errors. So One of the things that when I work with teachers at schools, I talk to them about setting up, if you're setting up a rubric for like a writing assignment, I will, will focus on three things. One is the content of the paper. What is the expectation of this paper? Two will be for grammatical components. And then the third one will be for a set part of spelling, not for spelling in general. So you can kind of condense your focus for writing down a little bit and just keep that at the forefront when you're grading and when you're looking at student work, looking through the lens of, are they answering the question or are they on target for the essay or things like that, instead of being bogged down with the spelling errors. Excellent point to make. And so there can be specific things that you're looking for in spelling. Maybe there's an expectation over time because they've shown mastery in particular areas of the curriculum that, okay, by now they can use suffixes appropriately or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we also get into the subject sometimes. What about when a child is in the middle of just the drafting stage of writing and they get frustrated with, well, I don't know how to spell this word, that word, and trying to get their thoughts out. And, And so just to be mindful of that, we can get into that in another episode with yeah, writing, maybe, but... and maybe we should do one on spelling. Cause you know, you can yeah. provide things as Emily said, like the front loading or lists or your, yeah, your, you know, must haves or things like that, but just being mindful of not marking off for spelling and that, and that's across all subjects. So having that awareness outside of the English language arts block as well, and understanding the accommodations there too. Absolutely. All right. 
So one of our pieces of assistive technology out there, and that's speech to text software. Now there are many different programs offered out there, some that have been around a long, long time. It's something that's going to require some training for sure to work effectively, mm-hmm. especially speech to text. You know, the, the software needs to be able to recognize the nuances of the voice and accents and so forth. And so there are trainings that you can do, but over time, as the demands of writing become increase, this may mm-hmm. be an accommodation that you want to consider. Is it for everyone? Yeah. It may not be, no, but something to think about. Absolutely. And there's a lot of wonderful software pieces out there. And I just want, wanted to note, so I often will recommend to people to check out the Cal Scotland, the Communications Access Literacy and Learning website, because they provide um, these wonderful graphic organizers, or I don't know, posters that have links to all of these different apps and technology pieces available. And I'll make sure I link that in the notes, Um, but it's out of the University of, of Edinburgh, but they have them set up for Chromebooks, iPads, and what they've done, what I really like is they put them in these like wheels. And so they'll have, these are the These are the tools that are great for reading. These are the tools that are great for writing, for organization, for memorization. So Mm -hmm. you can take a look at those as well and see which of those technology pieces may be really beneficial to have as accommodations for your students. And as a student becomes an adult, speech to text Mm -hmm. software is still probably going to be a pretty valuable tool for any kind of email communication, it, it really will depend on uh, you know any kind of report that they may have to write for their company, something that they really may be reliant on that software. So Absolutely. training them early to use it and finding what works best for them, you just follow them through into adulthood and just helping them get over that hump of right. communicating. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the training piece because I think this is for every single accommodation we've talked about. If we don't provide opportunities for the students to know when and how and why to use those and then provide lots of opportunity to practice and then reflect and then practice again, then those tools are really meaningless. It's great. You could have as many apps as you want on your phone, but if you don't know how to use them appropriately to help you, to benefit you, then they really are a waste. So as we're working with speech to text, that takes time in your lessons to provide direct teach of it, then provide opportunities to practice, practice, to use it, and then to come back and reflect with the child on what was working, where is it? having, you know, where are you having a hard time accessing this and then provide practice again. So throughout all these accommodations, that is really the, the key piece. We have to provide opportunities to practice these accommodations. Absolutely. And as Casey was saying, and, and to go back and to refine, something's not working, Mm -hmm. you know, how do, how do we fix that? And that's the process for so many things that we do, right? Yes. Trying it out, practicing, making revisions and so forth. So I know, um, I, I know we keep coming yeah. back to that metacognitive piece, but I really, th- it is, uh, it's really embedded in what we do and Everything. We really, truly are teaching that gradual release of responsibility. And we're teaching explicit instruction and we're using the Orton Gillingham principles. Metacognition is 
in there and it's just there. And I think it's something maybe that we haven't always talked about in our trainings or in our education world or dyslexia world, but it is there. And, and it is such a powerful piece for us as educators and parents to be aware of and how to help guide children in that as well. I mean, that's where the power is. So you know, and know if I anything else, it. because it's so powerful, <laughs> metacognition, honestly, is heightening our communication. It's heightening it to a, a level that we can express ourselves. And gosh, our kids really need to learn how to do that, especially yeah. in the world we live in today, knowing how to communicate what they need. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have a few more. We've got Okay. Reading aloud in front of peers on a voluntary basis. If you're an educator or a family member that works directly with people with dyslexia, well, all educators do in some form or another, right? Because mm-hmm. they're in everybody's room, but we just have to be so, so mindful of this. I ha- have a story of a student that there was a substitute teacher one day and And the child was asked to read it in front of the class and they did, even though they know this is not something that they typically had to do and came home feeling rightfully upset for being teased. This is something that really gets into their self-talk so negatively if they are asked to read aloud in front of peers without them initiating it. So so, so important to reflect on that. Sometimes if you want to choose situations where students are to read out loud, for instance, maybe you have those fun little readers theater scripts or like poems for two voices. Those can Mm -hmm. be a lot of fun, but those take a lot of rehearsal first, a lot of practice, having that discussion with the student and working with them, maybe in a small group before and asking them, okay, is this something that you'd like to participate in? Or would you like a different kind of a role? Things like that. That's just one example, perhaps for classrooms in the younger grades. Right. And that's really speaking to kind of the reading out loud in a general classroom or in like a large setting. And then another one that we could talk about, and Emily and I actually were saying, we should probably do a whole episode on this is, is homework. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) and talking about what are accommodations for homework. Yes, there are some and what that looks like and what that means. And then how to have conversations so that you're working as a team with the parents or with the families working with the educators, right. That you're creating this team of understanding about homework and accommodations across the board. So, and as your child gets older and has to juggle the different expectations different personalities of having different teachers. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. And so homework expectations, as you know, will look different according to the different subjects Mm -hmm. and quantity will look different just depending on different philosophies of homework. I definitely think this should be a whole episode and yeah, maybe homework and study skills or something. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of times when you'll see your child coming home and just having a total meltdown over Mm -hmm. not just maybe their day, but also, oh my gosh, now we have to enter the world of 
homework. (laughs) So um, we would love to dive a little more deeply into that. But yes, homework accommodations can be something as simple as a quantity thing where a child may have five to eight math problems instead of 10 to 15, something like that. So we can use it up. Yeah. And then another one really bridges into the next thing that we were talking about where, you know, having those test questions read out loud. So I always tell parents, you know, look, read them, have, they would read the passage depending on where we are on there, right. Evolving over time, but read them the test, the questions. And if there's answer choices, read those as well. Or if there's vocabulary, front load the vocabulary, read the vocabulary out loud for them. So when we're talking about that accommodations for test whether it's the standardized test that you're taking and there's accommodations for that, or just in the general classroom, we want them to mirror one another. So your accommodations really should be, if you're having standardized test accommodations, that those should be mirrored in the classroom. So oftentimes, you know, having questions um, and answer choices read out loud is that goes on our accommodation list. And that's because we want students to keep their focus on what they've read or on the looking at the language of the questions instead of having to read the questions themselves. Right. And we want, especially in a test taking situation, we want the test results to be representative of their abilities to whether they understand the content or not, not to be representative of the fact that there may be some poor reading going on. Right. Right. We know that (laughs) we want there. So once again, leveling the playing field by reading those test questions out loud is certainly just so, so important. So coming back to that idea of the toolbox as parents and educators, we can help students prepare their toolbox for learning. And we can help determine then which tools help them access the curriculum, help to move their learning forward and help them reach their full potential. And so again, right, that, that guidance and those metacognitive skills is really needed to bring this, that awareness to students on their journey. And as Emily had said, right, accommodations allow us to focus on the strengths and they allow a child to also showcase and recognize their strengths as they are provided with opportunities to access the curriculum or perhaps show what they what, what they know in a different way. Right. And I just think this would be such a, a, a valuable lesson to do at the very beginning of the school year with all your students. If you're a classroom teacher, just having a picture or just like a little activity where like, here's your toolbox and we're going to talk about the ways we learn best and what are the tools to help you learn best. And yeah. so that everybody can participate in this conversation and to recognize that different kids need different things. Being fair doesn't mean doing the same for everybody, right? So that's a big conversation I would have with my students about that. Different people need different things at different times. Absolutely. So, and, yeah. and one of the things that we can do, depending on how accommodations are used or viewed in a classroom, they can either create a negative stigma and make the child feel that their learning difference has really been pointed out to everyone, right. or we could introduce them in a way that they are tools, right? Yeah. So how we introduce and address accommodations to our students and within our classroom really is key for building and preserving self-esteem and self-advocacy skills. So one of the things that um, we can do is we can teach accommodations to everybody. You can teach that tool to everyone, right? Right, And have it available because, and what you'll find is, yeah, at the beginning, everyone's going to want to use the tool, but 
eventually what people, what the kids will start to have the self-realization that they don't need that tool. But what we've done is we've taken away this idea that, oh no, that's just for you. Right. You get that tool. Instead, it's like, hey, here's something you can use to help you. And, and then everyone practices it. And then you can, and then here, this is where it's available, guys. So if you need it, get it. Yeah. That is a whole different ballgame than pointing out, like, oh, you need extra notes. Okay, they're in the back. You can stand up and go get it. No yeah, or like, gonna do oh, that. you need more time. Okay. Yeah. So here, let's, yeah, we'll wait for this person because they need more time. So for instance, yeah as a classroom teacher, my listening center would, this is third grade, always there. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the importance of having that listening center there and how that helps people with their reading and what we do when we're there, how we have a copy of the book in front of us, how we're following along, right? How we're, you know, being respectful of the volume for all the listeners and so forth. And that was just there all year long. Yes. It was just a part of the classroom. So important. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important to have it available to students, all of our students for multiple reasons, right? right? You may have some students that have been flying under the radar and all of a sudden they get these accommodations, you know, or they have a tool, right. And they're like, oof, they take off. That may kind of give you a, like a pause to say, mm, maybe I need to look and see why that was helpful. And then you have conversations with the students and help them monitor and reflect on their usage of the tools as you're modeling and having those conversations. So it really how we bring that, how we bring those accommodation tools into our classrooms is so important. And it really does speak to the social emotional learning for all of our children, but especially for our children with learning differences. Yes. So, you know, bringing them to light, talking about how people need things at different times for different reasons and, um, and, and mm -hmm. how to use them, modeling them, right. How to take care of our tools, how to speak up when a tool isn't working. Yes. What do you do? These are all such valuable conversations to have, like in your morning meetings, what do you do when, or why is it important to have this? and so forth, you know, presenting different scenarios and, and having those open conversations. So just everything feels like, you know what? Yeah, I can see how everybody's getting what they need at the time they need it and being really inclusive and mindful of the other people in the classroom, but besides you my friend. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. And Emily and I, we, we really did kind of dive into how we can use metacognition in our literacy lessons. You can check that out in episode three. If you, you kind of want to go back and, and take a listen to that, yeah. because we do really talk about all of these pieces and coming together and the importance of that. So, right. Yeah. We talk about metacognition a lot, so you'll hear it pop up mm -hmm. quite a few episodes, but yeah, episode <laughs> three for sure. And I love how we have um, used this podcast to show the linkage between a metacognition and SEL. So, so important. Yeah. So uh, we are going to wrap up with a bit of a, it, I guess it's kind of a meaty question, Casey. It is. <laughs> a little, it just is a cool. wee bit. <laughs> so we're going to do our best to address it. And we are also just going to put a little disclaimer out there that this is a teacher from Canada and, and, and Casey and I aren't, aren't from Canada. However, we know wonderful educators 
from Canada. And so I think it will be really helpful if we reach out to them just to sort of follow up and, and see. But this person is a second grade teacher and they suspect that they have a few students with dyslexia, but there's not a specialist that can diagnose and parents really would have to be seeking private help. So they want to know, are there any screeners or that, or tests that teachers can administer, recommend, and um, they are mindful of the fact that yes, a maybe a private eval um, in Canada is pricey. We know they're very expensive here in the US. So um, we're aware of that as well. So we're gonna talk about a couple of things to keep in mind. All right. Yes. I think one of the things, you know, first and foremost, just to kind of put out there is understanding that there's a difference between screeners and a formal diagnosis. So a screener really can provide you with some really useful information. Um, It can help you determine if there are perhaps some red flags for dyslexia, some characteristics. But what I would usually tell people is that those then indicate that perhaps we need to seek further testing, whether that's through your schools. I'm really not as familiar with the Canadian school system as I I would like to be. So I will reach out to some people and and ask about that seeking testing through your schools or privately. But even if you have your screener information, you can use that to drive your instruction, right? So you can, you can use that information. So there are some screeners out there, um, that you can use. Nessie has one, Dr. Nadine Gab has an app for early screening. And then on the International Dyslexia Association website, there are several screeners that they have listed as well. So I would recommend looking there as kind of your starting point for your screeners. Yes. And I think that's such an important distinction to talk about that. Yes, there's some value in in screeners. They can raise some red flags for you, but yes, Mm -hmm. the value of having complete testing is really not something we should ever overlook, especially when we're talking about somebody who is presenting as having dyslexia. And as we said, we'll reach out and see if we can gather some more information about the way special education in Canada works. But we, we do recognize that, you know, there, there is a need, right? Because dyslexia is everywhere. Right. Um, so definitely check out the IDA website because I love that they've broken down some information for screeners, whether it be for young children or even for adults, because there are some adults and that have- I just want to add that, you know, if we're thinking about that clinical diagnosis and we're tying that back to accommodations, at least here in the United States, and we're thinking long-term, right? Remembering that dyslexia is lifelong, that it will shift. It will look different as we go through services, but in order to have accommodations in place in college, in the workplace, as an adult, the, that clinical diagnosis is often required. Right. So there are some things that, you know, if we're thinking long-term, I know if we're teachers and parents, sometimes the moment we dive in, like that's our primary focus, which I completely understand, but also the more we understand about dyslexia and understanding the long-term implications, thinking beyond just this precise grade or this moment in time um, mm. can be really beneficial if we're thinking about testing services. So yes. with that yeah. being said, yeah. Emily and I did talk about a lot of the red flags for dyslexia in episode two. If you want to take a listen there, there's also listed in, you know, 
the IDA website has some, the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity has some as well. So you can find lots of information about those. Uh, I'm so grateful to Nadine Gab's work here in the Boston area mm-hmm. through Boston Children's Hospital. She's got an excellent website. If you'd like to she look does. into um, early ID and and the research that she's done in that field, it is amazing. The second part of this question from the second grade teacher also had gotten some information from their learning support teacher on vision therapy. And she was wondering, is this something that we would recommend? And so we are going to just put out there that there is a specific joint statement from Mm -hmm. organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and also pediatric ophthalmologists uh, that have come together in a joint statement to let people know on record about vision therapy in terms of treatment for dyslexia. So we are going to put a link to that so that you have that backed by uh, medical science. And that's been out there for a few years now, Casey. I forget, probably over five, I think. Yeah, I want to say, I think it was 2014, perhaps that it came out. It's been quite some time. And, And, you know, they do talk about, you know, their evidence of not supporting, um, vision therapy for treatment, um, or remediation of dyslexia. So you can read that whole joint statement out there. And this teacher had said that, you know, she's already checked her tracking ability. So if we're thinking about just through the lens of treating dyslexia, I do recommend looking at that joint statement. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And we, and, and as we all, as you all know, you've been listening to this podcast, we are speaking in terms of dyslexia remediation. Okay. All right. And this next episode coming up is going to be great because it really is linked nicely to this episode on accommodations. Mm -hmm. So Casey, who do we have coming next time? Yes, we have a very special guest speaker who will be coming to address the legal aspects of accommodations and IEP and 504 plans for students with dyslexia and other learning differences. So be sure to Stay tuned for that. I'm really excited to talk to Sabrina, who is a lawyer. So be ready to to do that. I think that one's going to be so valuable for families and educators. We really try to speak to both audiences here because we know that we do have a lot of families, caregivers who are listening to the podcast. We so appreciate that. Don't forget to please leave us a positive review and some feedback on the podcast and reach out to us. If you have any questions, please keep in mind that um, it might take us a little bit longer to get to everybody's question, but we do get to them. And a lot of times we, if you ask us a question, we'll address it in a future episode, totally anonymous. Absolutely. Okay. We don't give anyone's names. Um, so that's something to keep in mind and you can reach out to us at support at together in literacy.com. Please also check out the show notes for this episode in our blog post. We always have a blog post that accompanies these episodes and they have the links that we talk about in them. So you want to be sure to uh, go on there, www.togetherinliteracy.com. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye everyone.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.